The Next CMO Podcast explores topics that are on the minds of forward-thinking marketing executives, from leadership and strategy to emerging technologies. And we bring these topics to life by interviewing leading experts in their fields. The Next CMO is sponsored by Plana, makers of the world's first AI-based marketing leadership platform, and hosted by me, Peter Mahoney, the founder and CEO of Plana, along with my co-host, Kelsey Kraft. In this episode, we speak to Chris Wallace, the co-founder and president of Interview, a brand consulting firm with a unique perspective. They specialize in helping brands leverage their frontline workers to communicate their brand values more effectively. Interview created a concept called the Brand Transfer Score that helps measure how effectively your team communicates your brand message to your customers. Chris has an amazing pedigree with a degree in communications from Syracuse University and an MBA from Temple University, where he continues to teach as an adjunct faculty member. If you're planning to invest in your brand, you definitely need to listen to this episode to make sure you're getting the most out of that investment. I hope you enjoy the show. Chris, thank you so much for joining the Next CMO podcast today. We're super happy to have you on the show. Love to learn a little bit more about you and what you do for interview. Well, Kelsey, thanks so much for having me on and Peter as well. I'm excited about the show. Um, a little bit about me, um, trying, to think, uh, trying to think where to start. We, we covered some of the basics uh, before the show started here. I'm from upstate New York originally. I'm a proud Syracuse, uh, former resident and Syracuse University graduate. but um, I've, you know, spent most of my career in really on the sales side of the house. So maybe some of your, your marketing listeners may have just cringed a little bit, but, um, I'm sort of a reformed salesperson and, uh, really spend my time now really helping marketers bridge the gap between their marketing strategy and their messaging and their, and their frontline channels. So the people who are out there, are out there selling for them, you know, we kind of play marriage counselor between the two of them. That's great. I, li- I like the, uh, the idea that you are reformed. I actually refer to myself as a recovering CMO uh, because, you know, since I, I dropped the mantle of CMO when I started to, to run this company and found it, I, uh, I decided that recovering is probably the best way to talk about it. So it's a great way to think about it, for sure. It, it is great. And, and obviously, I, I think tongue was firmly planted in cheek, Chris, when you were talking about the uh, love-hate relationship or hate-hate relationship between sales and marketing, because I, I, I think it's really pretty dramatically improved over the years where I think marketing and salespeople these days have a much better understanding of the relative value. And certainly the people I talk to all the time endeavor to create really strong relationships. But a piece of it is really understanding uh, about how to collaborate and how to actually use your your one of your important most important marketing channels, which is your sales force to amplify a message effectively to your, your, uh, your target audience. It's one of the most high fidelity ways that you can communicate. For sure. One thing I would, I would say though, in our experience, we've seen the improvement in that relationship on the B to B to C side, excuse me, on the B to B side significantly in the last, you know, five, five to seven years, but we do a lot of work on the B to C side and the B to B to C side. And it's very different there. Um, you know, B2B has really had a lot of organizations, the, the Foresters of the world and the Gartners of the world have really pushed the thinking of 
really how the, the, the marketing side is feeding sales and how they need to work symbiotically together. And, you know, what we're finding is that same level of sophistication is not there on the B2C side because marketing looks at themselves as we drive demand and the, the selling channels, it's really very separate. So um, the divide is wider there and the dollars are big because, you know, the consumer brands spend a lot of money. So um, that, that's a big area of our focus. It makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting because there there's a lot that we see because we talk to a lot of marketing leaders from both B2B and B2C. And there's a lot of really interesting sort of interplay between those two uh, target markets that we see. A lot of them, one tries to learn from the other. The B2B marketers are trying to do a better job in learning how to how to market more to the individual because, of course, you don't sell to companies. You sell to people who happen to work for companies. And, right. and so that, that idea of really creating a kind of consumer relationship with the consumer of your product or service, even if they're inside a company, I think is really important. And it's interesting that we, like me, have spent most of my time, probably 80% of my time more in the B2B space. I always looked fondly at the greener grass on the other side saying, oh, those B2C people are really smart. They know everything going on. But it turns out maybe there's a couple of things that they could learn from the B2B side is what you're saying. The silos are just further apart. That's all. And in and, and, and B2B, those, those folks sit closer together in B2C. Um, I think that the, um, the, the scope of their day-to-day work um, is not, they're not joined at the hip as much, right? There's a lot of big, big agencies involved and big ad spends and things like that. And that's where the marketers focus their time. But, you know, as one of our clients says all the time, we're great at putting it up on the billboard. But when the billboard drives the phone to ring, we're not great at making sure that the person who answers the phone can represent the same message that was on the billboard. So um, that's really the role that we play is, you know, if the silos are there and the divide is wide, you know, we, we sort of become the glue in between them. So can you tell us a little bit more about your relationship between brand and customer experience? Yeah, I mean, I think this is another thing that's really interesting um, on the on the B2C side. Um, customer experience has been, you know, a, a very fast growing trend and area of focus for the last several years. And then it just took off, you know, exponentially during during COVID. But um, it's also different from B2B. B2B is just really starting to get focused on customer experience. But the way we look at it is the lines between brand and customer experience are getting blurrier and blurrier every single day, right? When, when you think about how customers are choosing the, the brands that they'll do business with, um, the customer experience is starting to define the brand, right? You think about the, the companies that do it best, the American Expresses of the world, the BMWs, the, uh, the Ritz-Carltons, right? Their brand is defined by the experience they deliver to the customer, not necessarily the product. So uh, we really think of it as the, the lines between them are blurry, but it's really important that you have, that you're synced up between those two things, right? You know, we look at it as a brand promises that simply that's what a brand is, a collection of promises. The brand says, we can do this for you. Trust us. We can do this. The customer experience is really the, the backing up of those promises, are the people out there serving the customers every day? Are they aligned to what that promise is? Do they understand what that promise is? And do they act in a way that is consistent with what the brand is saying? You look at the Patagonias of the world. Well, they do that. They, they, they walk the talk, as another one of our CMO friends says. But, you know, we're really out there trying to help brands walk the talk because very few are good at it. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because the 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 implementation of brand when you're dealing with people gets a little complicated, obviously. So you can do a lot when it comes to uh, to creating digital experiences that are brand aligned and. But when you get to that organic kind of connection between your brand and a person that's supposed to be expressing the brand, what are the kinds of things that a a company can do to get better? I mean, obviously, not everyone is going to be BMW or Patagonia right at the beginning. So what what kinds of things should people start to think about uh, to maybe first diagnose, do they have a problem? And then two, what are the key things they might start to address to, to sort of amplify or align their brand through their human capital? Yeah, so, so it's an excellent question. The, the one thing I would say is um, w- one thing we never find a, a problem with is getting marketers to admit that this is a challenge that they have. Marketers are very willing and forthcoming with this sense of, you know, we always ask, how confident are you that your, your message is being told at your front, you know, by your frontline teams the way that you design the message? And they all laugh and they roll their eyes. So the diagnosis part is really where we've put a lot of uh, focus and attention, not so much to tell them that they have a problem, but it's more to pinpoint where to improve it. Right. Like, you know, most people know that their shoulder hurts, right. But they don't know how to address it. So they need some sort of diagnosis. So the way we approach that is the way you start any good relationship, you base it on listening, right. And truly, you know, listening and trying to understand, um, in the case of our group at, at interview, what we do, we built a, a tool, we built a process called the brand transfer study and the brand transfer score. And essentially what it does is it takes the same type of mechanisms that brands go out and gather feedback from their customers. We're gathering feedbacks from their frontline teams. So we look at it as if you can influence the person talking to the customer, you can reach the customer. Um, you can, you can only buy so many ads. You can only put up so many billboards. You can only put so many banner ads online. You can reach your customers directly through those communications but when the moment of truth happens and they're inter- interfacing directly with someone from your company, making sure that you can influence the outcome of that conversation by influencing that individual, that's what this diagnosis allows them to do. So, um, and, and it's really important to, to say, we truly listen to them and we listen because we want to understand their attitudes and their perceptions. Those are the two phrases we always use, attitudes and perceptions. We don't care what they know. We don't care if they know that you have the best warranty in the industry. We don't care if they know the the product specs. Yes, that matters to some degree, but other people can go do knowledge checks. And that's where most organizations put their their attention is, well, let's, let's confirm what our sales team knows. We don't care what they know. We care what they, what they perceive. We care what they believe. And if they don't believe in your product, it becomes awfully hard to represent it in front of a customer the way you want them to. That's fascinating because I, I assume there's a the idea of sincerity or authenticity that comes through in those interactions when someone really believes and lives the brand values. Is is that the way we should think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, I, I jokingly say I'm a, re- a reformed salesperson, but uh, here, here's a, here's a little a little tidbit. Um, I'll never stop selling, right? You know, especially being in, in, you know, a small business owner and, and working in the consulting game, you're always selling. And I think about that idea of, you know, the, the ability to sell when you believe in something, it doesn't feel like selling, right? When, when you believe in something, you know, somebody said to me a number of years ago, energy transfers, right? And when you truly believe in something, you have passion for it, that authenticity comes through. And I truly believe that 
Um, you can't fake that. Customers know when it's being faked. And you know when you're being served by somebody who really truly believes that they're providing you value and providing you help. And I don't care if you're selling B2B or B2C or, or, or somewhere in between, um, that always shines through. So our goal really is to understand what's in the heads of those people out there talking to the customers so we can influence them, we can reach them with the right message. In some cases, take what they believe in and just amplify and say, we're glad to hear that you believe in the service that we provide. Let's focus on that more, lean into that and, and remind them really remind them what they believe in so much in the first place and amplify that message. And it drives the right behaviors. It drives that authentic approach, like you said. So Chris, do you have a good example, maybe a juxtaposition of what happens when you do this right versus when you do it wrong? So help us understand for, for our listeners, what the, the impact of this problem, if you're not amplifying and sort of living your brand values through your, your front facing population. What, what's the impact of doing that? Do you have a way to illustrate that for us? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations. Um, we've done a lot of research uh, with, with both marketers and with frontline teams to really understand their perspective. And, you know, what we found is the, um, the marketers don't have a tremendous amount of confidence that the front lines are telling this story. Okay. But then we ask them, how are you communicating with them? How are you trying to get this message out? So I'll start with where I think organizations are struggling. Okay. So what's happening that's wrong. Um, And what we hear from both frontline employees and from marketers is the connection points between marketing and the frontline teams typically take the form of uh, the two, the two primary culprits are email communication and product training. So when you think about bringing something to market, you think about how are we going to compel action, right? We want them to act in a certain way. We want them to act in a way that's consistent with the brand. We want them to believe in the product. I don't know about you, but emails and product trainings don't really drive me to believe in anything, right? You get a lot of people looking at their watch. You get a lot of people rolling their eyes. They're, they're turning their camera off on Zoom so they can go walk their dog. You know, we, we see that all the time you know, with, with brands who are pr- primarily focusing on doing it through product training and through emails. So, that doesn't work. We have data that shows that that does not move the needle. It's not driving confidence in your brand. It's not driving confidence in the marketing team. They're easy. They're efficient. They're super efficient. They're cost-effective ways to get the message out. You check the box and you move on. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw a parallel to organizations that we've worked with that we believe are doing it right. Um, we worked with a, a major jewelry brand. And uh, online jewelry brand, name that a lot of people would know. And they had, they basically were going to market with a message around how customer centric they were, their expertise. You know, we care about you and we are the experts come to us. And the phones were ringing and we listened to a lot of phone calls and we worked with their team to to help them understand that what they were telling the customer were through those ads was not what was happening in the calls. Okay. It wasn't what was happening. Now we could take that brand alignment exercise and we can put it into a training and we can put it into an email, but you can't train people to care about the brand that they represent. You can't train them to feel like the work that they do matters, right? You have to help them feel it. You have to help them experience it. So we created a series of different, you know, experiential type tactics inside the organization. Um, a big part of which happened to be the listening, right? Hearing from them. How do you think the brand excels? What do you think you do for the customer that's special? So we take the brand stuff. We take what we hear from the frontline teams. We match those together 
help them experience that message in different ways, peer to peer interaction, you know, you know, different ways that we get them engaging in this message. And lo and behold, now they've talked themselves into how valuable the services that they provide to customers. We're not selling them. We're helping them, you know, in that case, we're helping them make the biggest decision of their life, find that engagement ring to, to you know, to propose and things like that. So um, I know that's kind of a, a kind of a long twisted path, but emails and product training don't work really getting underneath what people care about as it relates to the brand and then, and getting that out to them in different ways and helping them experience it. That's where we see success. So is there like walking over hot coals kind of things that happen? So how, how, do, how does this feel to the employee? What's the experience for them around sort of getting this different level of relationship with the brand? I'll give you an example of another, um, another engagement that we've done, major manufacturing brand consumer company. And they, um, we worked with their sales team. They were rolling out a major new initiative for their, for their retail partners. And we, we did one of our brand transfer studies and we heard from their team, please do not do another webinar. Please don't get us, you know, chain us to our desk for 90 minutes. We're out seeing our customers. We, 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 we need the information, but help us get it in a different way. So we built them a couple of different things. One was a series of uh, peer-to-peer um, sales conversations. So getting them, getting the, the regional sales teams on a call, um, professional facilitator, and really driving a dialogue of what conversations are you having? What are customers responding to? What's working? What's not? So we call that a critical thinking exercise. It's not handing them, as one of my partners says, a 72-page one-pager, that, that, you know, most companies do and say, here's all the information. How can we get them to soak in it and force them to think rather than handing them something that they're never going to look at? Most organizations are content to hand it and they never look at it. Um, the other thing that we did for them, that accompanied a podcast series. So for these outside sales reps, we developed an internal podcast series where they could provide feedback on what they wanted to know more about, where they felt like they had gaps. And then the executive team would, would record the podcast episode with us. And then as their sales reps are driving from appointment to appointment, they can listen to the 17 minute episode. And again, soak in that information right as they're about to go in and talk to one of their dealers about this major initiative. So we're really taking the information. When I say experience, it's no different than a consumer experience. We're just giving it to them on their terms. Understand what the, what the audience's terms are, give it to them on their terms, and they're much more likely to consume it. It, it makes a ton of sense. Obviously, uh, people learn through multiple modalities more effectively. And when they're interacting versus having stuff sprayed at them, they tend to absorb and understand the information a little bit better. So I imagine, Chris, that this would be further complicated in an environment where there's heavy employee turnover. And I think everyone's seen that now. I mean, we're hearing all this uh, post-pandemic people are sort of figuring out, hey, I don't have to work here anymore. I can work remotely. I'm going to go do something new. So there's the great quit happening now when people are changing. Uh, I think there's there's a huge challenge and there's a huge war for talent out there, to especially with things like salespeople who are have a pretty transferable skill. So how how do you think about that when you're trying to deal with an ever-changing population and then maybe related to that, if you do this correctly, my assumption is that you probably reduce some of that turnover because they really start to feel the love with the brand. You definitely, you literally just answered the question. Um, I, I think that the, 
Um, when we think about the turnover piece, that is one of the biggest areas of pushback that we get. When we start talking to an organization, they say, well, we turn over, we turn over 30% of our frontline population every year anyway. Investing in them doesn't make sense. And it truly becomes a chicken or the egg, right? Um, if they felt more attached to your organization, if they felt more compelled to be an ambassador for your brand rather than just an employee and, and a number in that process, then um, they're likely to stay. Um, we've proven that. The engagements that we do, we do not sell ourselves as employee engagement so you can reduce you know, attrition. That's not, that's not what we're selling. We're selling better connection with your customers, better customer conversations, better sales conversion, mm-hmm. bigger upsell, all of those things, right? A, 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 truly a better value-based conversation with your customer. But the halo effect of that is retention goes way up. Um, we've proven that the largest, the largest single project that we've ever done was specifically targeted at it, that decreasing the frontline attrition rates. And that pays for itself many, many times over if you invest in that. So the idea that I won't invest because my people just leave anyway. Well, if you, most organizations, if you take that attrition down by 5%, which is very achievable through these types of programs, 5%, it, it, that's a lot of money to most organizations, especially with salespeople. I'm curious how else you're measuring the results of, you know, these brand transfers and merging the two together. Like how are you defining what those certain metrics are and how to achieve them too? Every organization is a little bit different, Kelsey, but I can say that the, the ones that are most consistent are going to be sales conversion. Mm-hmm. So if we if if the potency of our differentiated message is as strong as it can possibly be when somebody's engaging with a customer, we will win more deals, right? And I think any marketer who's listening to this would agree. If mm-hmm. I can get more of my message, keep more of my message intact. When, by the time it gets to the customer, I'm likely to win more deals. I'm likely to convert at a higher rate. So sales conversion and then um, ticket size or, or attach rates. So um, people are buying better goods and they're buying more of them. So, so the average ticket goes up. Um, then I would say a tier two metric for us would be customer satisfaction. We do not go in and say, you know, some organizations know down to the dollar how much a point of customer satisfaction is worth to their company. Um, most organizations don't. So we, we don't typically focus on that as a primary metric, but we definitely see sales performance and customer satisfaction go up at the same time. It, those are not inverse. Those go up at the same time. And then the third is in, in employee, employee retention. We typically don't get into employee satisfaction. We feel like that's a little bit soft. Um, we want to be able to measure it in dollars. So employee retention is usually something most organizations know you know, what the improvement can save them as an organization. So it's really fascinating, Chris, because if I, if I look at the brand projects that I've done over the years, as an example, we spent a lot of money on brand realization. So taking these either brand campaigns or, or corporate brands and trying to express them mostly in some digital or physical form, but I don't think we ever did a good job, maybe in passing and sort of some lip service to really deep in handing out some new T-shirts to the employees, but really didn't do enough, I don't think, to to get them to to live the brand. And 
it's it's amazing because especially if there's a change and in the areas when where I've been involved in a major brand uh, change, it's because there's been some fundamental change going on in the company. And and I, I imagine that if you look at the the value of a, a a brand transition and sort of the return on the investment of a brand transition, pairing it with this kind of uh, this kind of indoctrination. <laughs> with with your frontline employees must be incredibly important. I, I suspect it will help you realize more value out of that. No question. We jokingly call it marketing insurance. So when you when you have a major initiative that you're undergoing, and when you say major organizational change, it's typically things like um, a merger, right? Or you know, merger acquisition, you know, a, a company rebrand, you know, that you know, new product introductions, things like that. Anytime change is coming to your frontline teams, to your, your representatives, you know, day to day, if you back up your bet with a little bit of marketing insurance, then your ability to, if you're driving customer demand and you're driving reaction, positive reaction to your brand, and then they show up to talk to you and they don't get what they were promised it's destructive to your brand and it's wasting your marketing spend. So one other area that we, we can me- measure, Kelsey, is cost to acquire, right? If sales conversion goes up, your CTA goes way down. I mean, and really, really fast, right? One point of conversion drives your CTA down you know, pretty significantly. So when we jokingly call it marketing insurance, we really do look at it as sort of that missing element. And a rule of thumb we use is a 10% investment. Look at what, your init- what you've invested in the initiative, whether it's a product, you know, product marketing, whatever the case may be, if you back that up with a 10% bet on on your or 10%, you know, insurance on, on reaching your own people, uh, your ability to to realize that value goes way up. How should we think about the implications of a channel organization? So, if someone is interacting with their clients primarily through non-employees. Is there a way to get them to embrace the brand? And is it different in that case? Yeah, that's that's where we're spending most of our time right now, Peter, is really around sort of the non-employee selling channels. And the there is a way. Um, the the recipe, I'm going to try to give it to you as simple as I, as I can think of it, which is the first things you've got to listen, right? And again, that's where, you know, we've really built this listening mechanism with, with our BTS process because you've got to hear them and truly understand, you know, really try to understand them. You have to look at them at, especially the ones that are representing them. You can't think of them as somebody you're selling to. You have to look at them as somebody you're selling through. Okay. And that idea is so important. You're not convincing them to buy your product. You have to convince them to represent it the way that you want to, so they can sell it to somebody else. You have to win their heart and their mind, right? Most organizations are only concerned about winning really one thing, their wallet. So listening on the front end and then getting off of the, the constant treadmill of just throwing more stiffs at your channel partners and trying to buy their attention, it is not what motivates people. Um, and everybody always says the same thing. Well, we know how to motivate salespeople. They're coin operating. Pump another quarter in and they'll do what you want. But when we work with major manufacturing brands that have retail partners that they go to market with, it doesn't work that way. You know, they need to find better ways to engage them. How do you learn how to engage somebody? You listen and you ask them what they need. You ask them what their challenges are. You ask them what their gaps are. And then you meet them where they're at. Just like we did with the sales team. You know, we did the podcast series for them. We did the sales huddles for them. Um, there's a lot of ways to reach those, those dealer and those, those channel partners. 
you've got to be creative. You've got to be willing to try different things. It's easy to throw a spiff at them. So once you, you know, create these systems in place that are going to help with, you know, sales of the front line and marketing speaking together and, you know, creating the same messaging, how do you make sure that your clients uh, maintain that? How are they continuously keeping that in their system? Because everybody knows there's many times we'll create something, you know, we'll have good results and then all of a sudden we'll go back to our old ways. Yeah. Um, well, once again, I'll say that when we, when we do one of our, our brand transfer studies, um, there are remeasures in, included with that. So mm-hmm. after you, you, if you're launching something or you're measuring something for the first time, you, you shouldn't stop measuring that. You continuously go back and take a look and say, are we aligned? Is that message still getting through? So that's a way to stay calibrated. In terms of how to maintain the discipline inside the organization, the, the best way I can think of it is, um, if you find yourself doing the thing that, that you would say, well, this is what we do every time, or this, this is the playbook we use every single time. By the time you reach that conclusion, you've got to change it up, right? It becomes noise. Organizations, I go back to the product trainings and the emails, organizations have gotten comfortable with the fact that as long as the box is checked, I send it out, people technically have it, that I did my part of the job. But marketers shouldn't be content with that. And that's where the biggest, I would say the biggest challenge, Kelsey, to to organizations either starting down this path or maintaining this path is marketers realizing how important of a role they play in it. If, If marketers say, I manage the brand, I manage the external message, and it's up to training or ops or whomever else inside their organization to manage that customer conversation, well, guess what? I mean, you're, you're, you're leaving your message to chance. So being willing to monitor it and then change when you need to change. Um, we have an organization that we work with that had a great new tactic that they pushed out to their field and they saw really great success with it. And the first two years, it was cranking. And then year three, it was still pretty good. And year four, the diminishing returns. It became part of the noise. You got to refresh it. You got to fix it up. Got to switch it up for people. Keep it fresh. So I, lo- I love the concept that you guys created around this brand transfer score. Uh, so it sounds like what you've tried to do is create sort of a standard diagnostic that helps people understand sort of where are you on the on, on the spectrum of being able to effectively communicate that brand value to the customer? And is, is that something, have, what, what does the range look like? <laughs> are, are most people pretty good at it? If, if, you, if you look at the data that you have today, um, where, where do most people fall within, uh, within your grading system, Chris? Well, I'm pleased to announce, we actually just released for the first time our first ever aggregate brand transfer score. So across all the, one, the dozens that we've done with major brands and about 8,000 frontline employees, um, the average brand transfer score, and it's done, it's done on a scale of zero to minus 100, okay? So zero, zero means you've lost no, no efficacy of your message, right? Your entire message is intact. You are statistically aligned from your corporate tower to your frontline retail store, okay? Um, the range that we typically see is the best in class is in the, um, the high single digits, so minus seven, minus eight is best in class. If you're a minus seven or minus eight, that means that the view at corporate and the view at the front lines is virtually the same. Okay. Not exactly the same, still opportunities for improvement, but they're virtually the same. 
Um, on the low end, we're down in like the minus 45 range. So uh, we don't, we typically don't get into the minus seventies and things like that, but minus 45 range. That's usually before something's launched and people don't really know what's coming and we're trying to do an evaluation, but the average score is minus 20. So what that means is statistically speaking, the frontline teams have a 20% different view of their value proposition than the corporate team does. So one fifth of your message is essentially getting lost in translation. Very interesting. It's funny. My mind immediately went to the formula for the coefficient of restitution, uh, which is what measures the bounciness of balls is the way to think about it. Right. Um, And, uh, and that's, that's sort of it, right? What is the, what is the efficient transfer of energy? And if you drop a ball, does it come all the way up or very close to your hand or does it, you know, sort of just fall flat and, and stay there? Uh, and and it's it's a good way to think about your scoring system is a great way to think about the efficiency and 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 the loss lossiness of the brand communication because the reality is you're never going to get a full hundred percent transfer obviously but yeah. can you get reasonably close and and what what is the value have you tried to have you tried to sort of connect the connect the relationship of the score to business value. Is that something that yeah. you've worked through? That, that's, that's a big area of focus for us right now. You know, we're, we're in the process of really trying to see if there's causation between the, the, the brand transfer score and the, really the improvement in the brand transfer score. And then the, um, the, the business results that they get, I can tell you one of the, the challenges that we have with that is the organizations we work with are introducing new things so fast that by the time we would be going back to remeasure and, and, and do the second wave of the brand transfer score and really getting that feedback from the front lines to see if the score changed, they're already on to the next thing. So we're finding that it's this interesting dynamic of they feel good about getting that information. They feel good about being able to tailor the message to their front lines. Um, and then they're great. Let's do the next one. and Let's keep it going. But I think there's one, um, there's one really important thing to note. The scores are not good or bad. I think it's important to note, like, even though we have a score, we want to, it's, it's not good or bad. It's alignment or misalignment, but we can learn just as much from a, from a minus five as we can from a minus 35. And the reason why is for most organizations, when they're a minus five, we are still learning what the attitudes and perceptions are of the frontline teams. We're learning the things that they truly believe in. So if you're an organization trying to message to your front lines, knowing what they believe in, it, aligned or misaligned, it becomes a tremendous opportunity to amplify that, to remind them, to, to ensure that they really understand how that fits into their role and the role they play in delivering that every day. So just because you're aligned doesn't mean that you haven't learned something from it. You learn the things that you can double down on. In a lot of cases, people pay us to confirm their hunches. People pay us to say, I think we're off here, right? We want to do the measurement. And it comes back and they say, ha, I knew it. Sometimes confirmation, either that you're doing well or that you're aligned, can be just as gratifying to a CMO because that gives them confidence to push their strategy forward. Makes a lot of sense. I, I completely agree with that. And the the idea of of being able to validate some of those key assumptions is uh, is super important, obviously, Chris. And we, we've talked a lot about the sales facing staff members, but obviously this kind of a brand transfer value applies also to anyone who's customer facing, correct? 
really any audience. So um, again, we do it with, with sales teams. We do it with customer service teams. We do it with customer success teams. We do it with dealers, right? So um, those are our favorite ones to do. We just did our first one with pharma. So we, we broke into the pharma category and we did it with healthcare providers, but not looking at the healthcare provider as a sell to audience, but a sell through audience, right? Those are the people who have to represent the product to, to the patients. And it's a great example of one that we did where there was validation involved. The chief commercial officer had a hunch and the data he got back said, it's what I thought. I think we're on the right track. We doubled down. We forged ahead with our message. We get our team more synced up to that message. And, you know, it really can be done to any audience. It doesn't have to be customer facing. We just feel like that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of selling opportunity. Yep. That's, that's amazing. And I, I, I completely agree that the, uh, you know, that kind of the sales transfer experience, I'm sure there's a very strong, uh, there's a very strong business case for, for that level of investment. So how, how should, um, what should the investment be? So think about it this way. I mean, people talk about, uh, you, you talk about the, the insurance metaphor as an example, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but if, if you're if you're spending a hundred dollars on on your brand campaign, should you spend one percent, half a percent, ten percent? What should you spend to to make sure and and optimize the to make sure that it's really working? Yeah. I, so my point of reference is going to be more on the B two C side. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, my point of reference is is, is about ten to fifteen percent. So, you know, we know, for example, we were talking to a client one time, but a major initiative that they were doing and major product they were pushing out. And they told, we were told what the initial, just the ad spend was not how much they were paying their agency, anything like that. They told us how much the ad spend was. And they asked us the question, how, you know, what, what percentage? And we said 10 to 15%. Now, when you think about the 10 to 15%, what we think that 10 to 15% equates to is that 10 to 15% is what you will immediately spend on more ads and more messaging as soon as you see that it's not working as well as you want. So we look at it as rather than hold on to that money and spend it after it's not working, it becomes that insurance on the front end to say, what if we truly back up our bets? We're making this big bet with the advertising, but what if we back it up and ensure that when the phone rings, it matches up, people are energized to sell it, just a couple points of conversion easily pay for the fraction that's invested in what we do. So um, it, it just depends on the mentality of the person that you're talking to, but we look at it as spend this on the, on the spend this money on the front side rather than wait for things not to work and just keep pouring money into something that's not working. And when are the logical points for people to uh, consider doing this kind of an assessment? Is it, when you're launching a big campaign, a big new brand thing, is it is it anytime? So how 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 should the CMOs and the audience think about now that hopefully we piqued their interest? What what's the right trigger point for them to to look at making this kind of analysis? It's an excellent question. It's probably one of the most important parts. The timing of this is really key. Most of the people that we work with, they they come to us when something has been out there and has not performed as well as they wanted it to. So it's usually the first conversation is a break fix type of conversation. It's the, it's been out there for a year. It's dying on the vine. You know, we got to figure out how to jumpstart this. Um, then that immediately transitions into, well, why wouldn't we get out ahead of our, you know, our next launches and do this on the front end? 
So most of the time that we're, we're doing engagements now, our clients are doing them on the front end. So after they do the first one, they realize the different use cases and say, now this becomes baked into our go-to-market process. That's the best way to use it, right? There's the least, you know, least amount of waste, the least amount of time that's lost in the marketplace. This becomes a tool to help you get your, your, your speed to market, your ramp time um, shortened, basically. So that front end piece really becomes where, where companies settle in. So is there an easy way to tell whether it's likely a brand message transfer problem versus just a crappy message or a bad offer? So sometimes that happens too. And what are the things that a CMO should look out for to say that, that, Hey, this could be, this could be my frontline experience transferring the message. Yeah. So um, we get asked that question a lot and I'm going to, I'm going to be disciplined and stay in my lane here. I'm (laughs) going to say, it's not my job to tell you whether or not it's a good message. That's what your, your brand agency does for you, right? We're a niche provider, but we're a high value niche provider. And we're, it's not our job to tell you, we assume you came in with the market research. We assume that you know what the customer wants. We assume the product and the message were designed to meet that customer need. Um, we're not, we don't tell you whether or not that's right, but whether the message is right or it's wrong, if we can make you 5, 10, 15% better, that, that, that cures a lot of ills, right? So even if it's not the best message, if you, you've still got phones ringing, if you can convert more of those, or you've got people walking into a store or you've got sales calls that are happening, if we can convert five, 10, 15% more of those, it, it's definitely worth the effort. So uh, we're not going to come back and say, well, we think you got the wrong message. However, a brand transfer study does uncover a lot of frontline intelligence that companies end up using to say, maybe we want to tweak the message. Our front lines are telling us that this is what customers think. There's a big difference between what happens in the trenches and what customers say in market research. That's one of the things we uncover. And, and what is the, what's the scale that starts to make sense about putting the effort together to do this kind of program? Is it, is it uh, 20 frontline people or 20,000? Uh, I suspect it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it, it definitely is. So, so um, we typically say with a brand transfer study, 50 people or more, if you've got 50 people out there representing you, and that can be through a variety of channels, um, that's where we can, you can start to see some leverage from it and it's worth it. Now, there are, there are upstart companies that are you know, venture or private equity backed that have a lot of money in the bank and they need to scale quickly. They may only have 30 or 40 people, but man, they need to nail that message. They need to nail the support me- mechanism that their salespeople have because they may have 40 today, but they might have 400 a year from now. So um, it, it really just depends on the circumstance. But um, if, you, if you look at your organization, you don't have you know, four or five dozen you know, people representing you, you might just not see the leverage from something like this. Makes sense. So I, I know we're getting to the end of our time, but this this is really fascinating, Chris. Uh, and uh, and and it's I I look back again to the projects that I've been involved in over the years and the companies I've been involved in, and I I can just I know that some of the gap came at this level where that that last mile communication was was part of the problem. There there wasn't a real embracing of the brand message. In some cases, there was an eye rolling, which is probably can, can be pretty destructive, uh, obviously. So before we we roll into our last question, just just uh, help help our uh, audience understand uh, where can they learn more uh, about uh, interview? Sure. So the company site website is 
interviewgroup.com and it's I-N-N-E-R-V-I-E-W group.com. Um, Kelsey was nice enough to, um, to give me a compliment on the website. So I was very pleased by that. Um, and then brandtransferscore.com is where you can learn more about the proprietary process that we have, learn a little bit more about, you know, how we do that peek under the, under the curtain a little bit. This has been great, Chris. I love the conversation and my wheels are definitely turning on some of the campaigns we've run and seeing whether or not it's a brand transfer problem ourselves. So appreciate the, uh, the feedback and the insight, but lastly, we always love to ask what advice would you give to aspiring CMOs or CMOs today? Yeah. So the biggest piece of advice I can give, and, and I'm going to switch it up because, you know, thinking about your audience, you know, I'm typically my, my answer is, um, always be gathering feedback, but, but specifically for your CMOs, I'm going to, I'm going to say, think about the people who represent your brand as a marketing channel, right? Think of them. And you said that very well before Peter, look at them as an audience to be marketed to and an audience to be won over as a segment of your marketing plan and strategy, not as a group to be taken for granted. Um, they, we always jokingly say they're the gateway to your customer. They can decide, Peter, you talked about the eye rolls. We see that all the time. Good products have, have come and gone and lots of money, you know, left on the cutting room floor because sales teams didn't embrace new products. They didn't embrace new initiatives. They rolled their eyes and said another thing from corporate. Well, if you really look at them as an audience to be won over, those investments can pay off in much bigger ways. So um, it really is protection against, um, against seeing things fail. So um, that would be my biggest piece of advice is look at those groups who represent you as an audience to be won over and sold to and marketed to not taken for granted. People can also reach me by, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you want to find me on LinkedIn, it's Chris Wallace um, with interview. And there's a lot of Chris Wallace's. So look for uh, the Philadelphia area, which is where we're headquartered. So Chris Wallace in Philadelphia is a great way to reach me on LinkedIn. And we'll put the link in the show notes too. Thanks so much for your time today, Chris. Make sure to follow the next CMO and Plana on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you have any ideas for topics or guests, you can email us at the next CMO at Plana.com. Thanks, have Chris. Day, everyone. Thank you. 